Hello and welcome to the latest Stevenson Harwood Employment Law Podcast. I'm Kate Brearley, a partner in Stevenson Harwood's international employment team and I'm based in our London office. I'm joined today by fellow partner Kirsten Lucas, who leads our Middle East employment practice and is based in our Dubai office. This podcast is the latest in our mini-series on employee competition and it ties in with a fourth edition of the leading text that I co-author with Selwyn Block QC of Littleton Chambers titled Employment Covenants and Confidential Information and to which Kirsten has also contributed. The main focus of today's podcast will be the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on an employer's ability to protect the business from unlawful competition. In particular, the challenges presented by remote working and the potential impact on interpreting and enforcing restrictive covenants. We're then going to wrap up the session by looking at a couple of cases that have caught the headlines recently and which raise issues particularly relevant at a time when poaching of key employees is on the rise. A lot of employers may be surprised to hear that, Kate. Many may be thinking that staff are just happy to keep their jobs at the moment rather than looking for a move or that would-be poachers don't have the budget or headcount to be able to lure talent away. Why do you think we're seeing a rise in poaching? I think it's the age-old story that there are always those who can and will exploit moments of crisis when businesses are in distress and employees already unsettled or concerned about their future. Key players can be quite easy pickings. I don't think any of us have ever seen the working landscape change so fundamentally or so suddenly as it has in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the biggest change, of course, was the speed with which businesses had to shift to remote working. Oh, absolutely. Remote working used to be considered the exception rather than the rule, something more befitting self-employed entrepreneurs. But it's now abundantly clear that remote working in some form or another is going to be the new norm for most of us and for quite some time to come. On the upside, a lot of employers have come to realise that remote working is not only possible, but that it can also be very beneficial for the business. So what are the particular challenges for employers from a business protection perspective? Well, the most obvious challenge is the lack of physical visibility that employers have when staff are working remotely. A lot of the measures that prudent employers will already have in place to prevent and detect unlawful competition rely on the employer's ability to monitor and control behaviours in the workplace. For example, some of the early warning indicators of suspicious behaviour include employees staying late in the office or coming in at the weekends when fewer people are around, increased or unusual use of printers and photocopiers, secretive meetings or making phone calls on private devices, or unusual spikes in the level of contact with certain clients or suppliers. Clearly, these indicators will either be impossible or much harder to monitor and control when the office is no longer the usual place of work. Indeed, so it's easy to see how employees who are thinking of competing may look to exploit this newfound sense of freedom that remote working gives them believing that they are, as the saying goes, out of sight and out of mind. So, for example, how would the employer know something is amiss if those employees are using home phone lines to avoid detection on the employer's systems? Exactly. And the other big challenge for employers is that it's inherently more difficult to restrict how confidential information is accessed and stored when employees are working remotely. And this will have been a particular issue for employers who previously banned the removal of confidential information from company premises and also banned the use of personal devices for work purposes. That's right, Kate. 
And when we went into lockdown, a lot of employers had neither the time nor the resources to make sure that staff were provided with the necessary equipment to work remotely, which meant they had to relax their bans on using personal devices or taking confidential information off site. We've already seen some employers experiencing their first taste of employee competition as a direct result of having had to relax their usual procedures to enable remote working. So what are some of the practical steps that can be taken to guard against this? There's a number of protective measures that employers can implement, including some of the following. If confidential information really must be used off-site, employees should be required to use privacy screens on devices to store hard copies securely and make any work-related calls from a private space. This will be particularly important in shared accommodation to reduce the risk of housemates or family members seeing or overhearing confidential information, whether unwittingly or otherwise. Ideally, only employer-provided computers or phones should be used for work purposes, which the employer can then monitor, for example, through call logs to detect any unusual activity. And installing remote deletion software on employer-provided devices in case of loss or compromise is always advisable. If personal devices must be used when working remotely, then employers should use passwords or ethical walls to restrict access to confidential information and limit it to only those employees who genuinely need it to perform their duties. They should ban the downloading or saving of confidential information to personal devices, particularly any that automatically back up to a cloud-based site that is outside the employer's control. And they should require employees to use only secure Wi-Fi networks and employer-approved video conferencing facilities. These measures should be clearly set out in employment contracts or policies, ideally in a bespoke remote working policy. Updated policies should be circulated to staff as a reminder of what's expected of them, making it clear that any breaches could result in disciplinary action and even lead to their dismissal. Kirsten, you also mentioned the impact of remote working on employee engagement. Experience has taught us that disengaged or demotivated employees are more likely to be on the lookout for new opportunities with competitors. One clear theme that came out of the engagement surveys we considered when writing the book was that employees wanted more ways of making their work and home lives coexist more harmoniously. Surely remote working goes a long way to achieving that? I agree, Kate, but I think that the remote working experience has varied greatly depending on what other commitments employees have. For example, some have found it very difficult to balance work and homeschooling. Others simply prefer office working. In one radio interview I listened to in Dubai recently, comments were made to the effect that employees would actually look for another job if their employer made remote working permanent. Other COVID-related factors, such as permanent or temporary pay cuts and layoffs, or feelings of isolation, or that you need to be on call 24-7 when working remotely, will also impact employee morale and potentially loyalty. That all makes sense, and there's really no excuse for employers not to go the extra mile to check in on staff and make sure that they're coping with lockdown and still feeling engaged with the business. But given the economic impact of the pandemic, there may be little that in practice can be done to avoid pay cuts or layoffs. That's right, but employers can still control how they implement those pay cuts or layoffs. And the advantage of handling them appropriately goes beyond just the impact on morale. It also mitigates against the risk of constructive dismissal claims. That's a really good point and particularly relevant in the context of employee competition. 
time and again we've seen employees claiming that they have been constructively dismissed as a means of securing their release from notice periods and restrictive covenants and that's a point we'll touch on on a case we'll deal at the end of the podcast. I imagine it's only a matter of time before we see arguments run that being forced back to the office as lockdown is lifted amounts to a constructive dismissal. How viable do we think those claims will be Kirsten? Well, it's important to remember that in most jurisdictions, employees don't have a statutory right to work remotely. So the issue really becomes twofold. First, has the employer given a reasonable and lawful instruction to return to work? And secondly, has the employee unreasonably or unlawfully refused to do so? That analysis is inevitably going to be subjective and there won't be a one-size-fits-all approach. Key considerations would include the extent to which the employer has complied with any health and safety requirements regarding the workplace and whether employees have been given reasonable notice of the date by which they're expected to return. The prudent employer will also have considered any personal circumstances that may be driving an employee's refusal to return and whether it's possible to make any adjustments to accommodate or alleviate those issues. If all the required steps have been taken, then an instruction to return to work is likely to be a reasonable one. And as a result, it will be difficult for an employee to succeed with a constructive dismissal claim based on that instruction alone. So that's going to be some comfort to employers who are looking to reopen the workplace in the coming weeks or months. One final but really important COVID-related issue that has been vexing a number of our clients is the potential impact of some of the measures taken during the pandemic on the interpretation and enforcement of restrictive covenants. So, for example, a number of clients have asked whether they can really look to enforce covenants on an employee who they have made redundant. Well, redundancy of itself doesn't operate as an automatic release from covenants, but it does raise interesting questions as to whether there is still a legitimate interest to protect, which of course will be fact-specific. Another concern that employers have raised with us is the potential impact of enforced periods of paid or unpaid leave, such as furlough, immediately prior to dismissal. That's a great point, Kate. Most well-drafted covenants only prohibit, for example, dealings with customers or colleagues with whom the employee has had personal or material dealings during a set period prior to the termination date or the date on which they are placed on garden leave. These look-back periods, as they're known, tend to range from three to 12 months. As the pandemic looks set to continue for a lot longer than most of us expected, it's conceivable that some employees will have been on furlough or other leave for many weeks or months prior to termination. If they've had no personal or material dealings with customers or colleagues and no access to IT systems or confidential information during that leave, there may be nothing for the covenant to bite on. So one solution in relation to that problem might be to bring the employee back from leave into active work before terminating, so re-establishing the links, for example, with customers. However, many employers may well prefer to rely on the natural break-in connections that has already occurred, and that would usually be our preferred course. I think that's right, Kate. The other potential issue with extended periods of leave is whether employees can legitimately claim that those periods ought to be discounted from the overall period of the restrictive covenant, much in the same way as periods of complete garden leave are discounted. Well, you can see some logic in that where someone has been excluded from the business and performed no duties whatsoever during the period of leave, as was the case with true furlough in the United Kingdom. Agreed. 
But the saving grace for employers who don't want to have to set off those periods of leave will be that most garden leave clauses apply only after notice of termination has been given. And that won't be the case for most employees who are on furlough or some other type of extended leave. As always, the key will be for employers to ensure that covenants are drafted accurately, reviewed regularly in light of the personal circumstances of the individual employee, and where necessary, updated or renewed as appropriate. Thanks, Kirsten. And finally, we're just going to touch briefly on a couple of cases that have caught the headlines in recent months and which raise issues particularly relevant at the moment when the poaching of key employees is on the rise. So I'll I'll take the first case, Kirsten. In Square Global versus Leonard, the court looked at the perennial issue of enforceability of restrictive covenants. And it's a fairly typical case in terms of the facts and the arguments advanced by Mr. Leonard. So he had worked for Square Global as a trader for several years, and he wanted to leave to join a competitor. His contract required him to give six months notice, and he was then subject to a six-month non-compete covenant. Once Mr. Leonard gave notice, he could be sent on garden leave, but crucially, the time spent on garden leave was not offset against the period of the non-compete covenant. So in real terms, Mr. Leonard was looking at 12 months before he could take up his new role and most likely 12 months completely out of the market. Keen to start his new role, Mr. Leonard resigned and he claimed that Square Global had constructively dismissed him, which therefore entitled him to leave straight away free from all future obligations. Well, that argument cut no ice with the judge. The judge acknowledged a point we make in the book, Kirsten, and one previously approved in the case of Tullet Prebon and BGC, where the judge ruled that careful scrutiny is required of constructive dismissal arguments, where, as he put it, the employee has a significant incentive to advance such a claim in order to avoid notice periods and irksome restrictive covenants. The facts relied on by Mr Leonard as repudiatory breaches giving rise to the constructive dismissal claim, simply did not survive that scrutiny. In the alternative, Mr Leonard argued that the non-compete covenant was simply too long when taken together with a period of six months garden leave. That argument also failed. The fact the time spent on garden leave did not reduce the period of the non-compete covenant was not fatal. What the judge said was that the overall period of 12 months wasn't unreasonable in view of Mr. Leonard's position. So a couple of key takeaways. First of all, businesses recruiting for competitors, so the poachers, must expect that attempts by their recruits to escape notice periods and covenants by claiming constructive dismissal will be scrutinised and with a very healthy degree of scepticism by the courts. So encouraging or implicitly approving this tactic is often not the wisest course. The second key takeaway is that contrary to the view of some commentators, this case does not signal the end of the practice of providing that the period of restrictive covenants is reduced by time spent on garden leave. What the court will look at is the total period of possible garden leave and the period of the covenants in assessing reasonableness. And just lastly on this case, one observation by the judge worthy of note is his support for the proposition which was first raised again in the Tullet case that had there been a fundamental breach by Square Global, even if Mr. Leonard had not resigned in response to that breach, he could nonetheless have relied on it as a defence to Square Global's attempts to enforce the non-compete covenants. 
Of course, in the Square Global case, there was no fundamental or repudiatory breach established, i.e. no constructive dismissal claim, and therefore the point was academic. However, it is a timely reminder of the potential of this defence for departing employees and consequently of the importance for employers of avoiding significant breaches of employment contracts. Thanks, Kate. That clearly is a very timely case, given some of the pandemic-related issues that we've just been discussing. Turning then to our second case, when recruiting employees from a competitor, the poaching business should always be mindful of the risk of being sued for the tort of inducing a breach of contract, usually a breach of the restrictive covenants. In Allen, trading as David Allen Chartered Accountants versus Dodd & Co Limited, the new employer, Dodd, had taken legal advice on the risks of recruiting an employee from its competitor, Allen. The court accepted that Dodd had provided full background facts to the legal advisor, which Dodd had no reason to question. Whilst not definitive, the advice was that the individual's restrictive covenants were likely to be unenforceable. Based on that advice, Dodd proceeded with the recruitment. As well as pursuing their former employee, Allen sued Dodd for inducing breach of the employee's covenants. Even though the covenants were held to be enforceable, the Court of Appeal found Dodd not liable for inducing a breach. This was because the legal advice provided to Dodd meant that Dodd did not have sufficient knowledge that it would, rather than it might, be inducing a breach of contract. The advice received had been that it was more probable than not that there would be no breach, and this was good enough. The Court of Appeal emphasised that clients should be able to rely on legal advice responsibly sourced, even if that advice was equivocal and even if that advice turned out to be wrong. Interestingly, the Court of Appeal declined to comment on what the position would be had the advice been that it was arguable that the covenants were not enforceable. In our view, that formulation may well fall the wrong side of the line. So, Kirsten, undoubtedly a helpful case for employers in clarifying possible liability for inducing breach of contract. One issue the case throws up, however, is an interesting question around privilege and the waiver of privilege. Unfortunately, that's a topic all in itself and one for another podcast. That brings us to the end of this podcast. We regularly advise clients on all aspects of business protection, including the drafting and enforcement of restrictive covenants. So do get in touch with us if you have any queries in this challenging area of employment law. In the meantime, thank you for joining us. And don't forget that you can listen to all our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. 